from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. You know, that's a very interesting story to me because there I was in Longview, Texas, Mm -hmm. trying to get blacks registered to vote and everything, and especially getting close to when my husband died. I, um, there was just so many things to be done, like in 1964, when you had the Accommodation Act, and I had to test it in Longview, couldn't get anybody to go with me to any restaurant to test it. It just so happened that there was a fellow from Longview who came, he had been, a, he's, he was a principal somewhere, and he and his wife would come visit his mother. So. She didn't mind going with me, Mm -hmm. you know, because she felt the same way I did Mm -hmm. about things. So anyway, I worked real hard with those Democratic fellows, white fellows, you know, trying to raise the percentage of blacks and, and all of that. And it came time where I could possibly think about, really think about law school. The Honorable Dr. Harriet N. Murphy, retired municipal court judge, civil rights activist, former college professor and department head, and author of There All the Honor Lines, a memoir published by University of Texas Press. As the only African-American female in her UT Austin law class, Murphy has long been a champion of diversity issues. As a young girl growing up in the Buckhead section of Atlanta, Georgia, she recognized early on that fighting injustice and inequality would be her life calling. Through her work with the NAACP and the National Urban League, she sought social change at the state and local level. In 1969, Murphy was the only African-American student to graduate from the University of Texas School of Law, and in 1973, she was the first African-American female to be appointed to a judgeship in the Long Star State. Also, Murphy was instrumental in getting new legislation passed, capping the 10% rule at 75%. I'm Johnny O'Henson Jr. and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, There All the Honor Lies, a memoir with the Honorable Dr. Harriet M. Murphy in Black America. Buckhead in Atlanta was kind of like Tarrytown where all the rich and affluent whites lived at that time. But there were several black pockets like uh, Clarksville was here throughout Buckhead. And um, I ended up in living in probably about two or three of those places in Buckhead. And of course, I lived in Bagley Park longer than any others. The first one was Willistown, which uh, was on Dunwoody Road. And strangely enough, in those days, Dunwoody Road was a paved road. I didn't know of any black community out there in Buckhead that even had a paved road. And uh, it was named Willistown because my great-grandmother, who was born in slavery, was freed when she was six years old. And of course, her name was Harriet, and I'm named after her. Uh, She started building in that little area. And I think there were about four or five other houses there. And that's where I spent my real early childhood. As a young child growing up in segregated Atlanta, Georgia in the 1930s and 40s, Judge Harriet M. Murphy had it better than most. That is, she lived on a street that was paved. She attended a one-room schoolhouse in Fulton County. Murphy graduated seventh grade at Valedictorian, 
That put her on the academic track for those students who were college-bound. While attending Booker T. Washington High School, she had the opportunity to interview the first African-American to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, for an English class. Of course, she didn't take the assignment seriously. She embarrassed herself. But that encounter with him changed the way Murphy looked at the African-American experience in this country. Murphy went on to attend Spelman College. She earned a master's degree from Atlanta University. She became a public school teacher in Georgia. She taught government at Prairie View A&M University. And in 1966, she entered the University of Texas at Austin School of Law. Recently, In Black America spoke with the Honorable Harriet M. Murphy. I was telling a very good friend of mine one of these stories that was in there, and she said, you need to write a book. <laughs> so that was some years ago, so I, I thought about it for a while, and then later I said, I think I will write a book, because I had been writing letters to the editor and op-eds in the paper, and I said, I think I need to go ahead on and write a book, you know, about my memoirs. Tell our audience about your early days growing up in Atlanta. Was that Buckhead? Yes. Okay. Uh, Buckhead in Atlanta was kind of like Terrytown, where all the rich and affluent whites lived at that time. But there were several black pockets like uh, Clarksville was here throughout Buckhead. And um, I ended up in living in probably about two or three of those places in Buckhead. And, of course, I lived in Bagley Park longer than any others. The first one was Willistown, which uh, was on Dunwoody Road. And strangely enough, in those days, Dunwoody Road was a paved road. I didn't know of any black community out there in Buckhead that even had a paved road. And uh, it was named Willistown because... My great-grandmother, who was born in slavery, was freed when she was six years old. And, of course, her name was Harriet, and I'm named after her. Uh, She started building in that little area, and I think there were about four or five other houses there. And that's where I spent my real early childhood, uh, in Buckhead at Willistown. Tell us about the time that your granddad wanted you to start calling him dad. Yes, uh, my grandfather was kind of a popular minister, (laughs) preacher, and uh, he, uh, well, my mother's mother was his first wife. She died, Mm -hmm. and then he married a very young woman, beautiful young woman, and he had two children by her, and then uh, he got a divorce from her, and he married uh, the wife he lived with until he died. But um, he 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 was kind of like president of that circuit or something, and he was always traveling, and all the women knew him and everything. So he didn't want to be called granddaddy. <laughs> mm-hmm. He said, why don't you just call me daddy? <laughs> and that's what I did. Tell us about the time when you were in high school. In high school is where I really messed up on my age, but I didn't. I I'm not get sh- to that. <laughs> sure whether it. Uh, well, I was able to become a member of a clique, and it was kind of a popular elite clique. And the reason was that there was a fellow named John 
uh, George Funnenberg from American Georgia, who father didn't think the schools were good enough in America's Georgia because he was a doctor and everything. So he sent George up to live in Atlanta. And of course, uh, he had to attend Booker T. Washington High School because that was the only school that blacks could go to after they closed down the one in Spelman. And of course, all the girls, you know, just thought he was heaven. And uh, we would stand in the hall just to watch him pass. Mm -hmm. So by living in Buckhead, there was a young lady who did go to Spelman. She even went to high school in Spelman. She had an aunt living, even though this was uh, really in a ghetto. This aunt had a beautiful home there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Evelyn would come out to visit her sometimes and... um, she was dating uh, a fellow, last name Cunningham. So one evening, she and Cunningham and George came to visit her aunt, and there was something going on at the uh, USO, which was right behind our school. So they wanted to know if I could go with them. So I said, Yes, you know, I want to say yes, yes, yes. Yes. So they asked my mother, and she said that I could go. So we went, and um, uh, we danced, and uh, we had a lovely time, except I had to fight him all the way there and all the way back. But the next day when I went to school, all of a sudden I was so popular (laughs) that these girls wanted me to join their clique, you know. And they were rather fast. And um, it was there that I messed up on my age because I was only 14, and and they were 16. Mm -hmm. And I had not turned in a birth certificate, Uh, so the principal called me one day and told me he didn't have a birth certificate for me. Now, I didn't know how old I was, but I did know the day, the 6th of June, because my mother always had me a little birthday party. I remember Mm -hmm. the date. But I wanted to be the same age that they were. So I just assumed maybe I'm, I'm 16 too. So anyway, I went and got my own birth certificate and signed up that I was 16. And uh, that has just gone on for years. It was only when the 1940 census came out that they had my real age in there, which meant I was two years younger than I've been telling people all these years. <laughs> and it was all because they invited me to become a part of their clique. And I just thought, you know, this poor uh, girl coming out of Buckhead could run around with these real smart and from middle class, they were middle class uh, black girls, kids. And I I felt that, uh, you know, that I was just lucky. (laughs) I know, that's right. In high school, that's when you first met Martin Luther King Jr.? You all called him ML? Yeah, he... um, he was, um, I guess he was He was writing for the uh, school paper. And, um, you know, I didn't really associate with him. It was just passing him in the hall. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that we both were. They had three categories of uh, in that system at that high school. It was the only high school for blacks in, in Atlanta at that time. So they had the academic, those on the academic track, those on the commercial track, and those in distributive education where they uh, would teach the fellows how to put gas in cars and things like Mm -hmm. that. But 
ML and I, we were both in um, the uh, academic track, and uh, sometimes there would be something going on. And I, I mean, I didn't think of him as being important or anything. He was just there as a student uh, until I read what he wrote in the 1944 yearbook, you know. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your first job uh, when you were babysitting, and then you went to, to, to work with the store that preceded Macy's. I did babysitting. Well, you know, like I said, it was Buckhead, <laughs> and you had all those wealthy white people, mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't easy to even get their maids, you know, to right. come and be a babysitter. <laughs> so uh, this woman lived in my community, and she was one of their maids. Mm-hmm. So she asked me, would I like to be a babysitter? So their names were Dickies, and I've been mm-hmm. planning to look them up well, all these years. And because since she was a little baby, she still may be alive since yeah. I was 14 or mm-hmm. 15. And so, anyway, uh, I think I went through the house one night looking because uh, of just being the baby there, and I saw where President Roosevelt had sent them. Uh, one of these whole uh, silver tea sets and things. Mm-hmm. So they were very wealthy uh, people. And after that, because uh, that was even during the school year, but during the summer, uh, I applied for a job at Macy's, not at Macy's, but at Davidson. Davidson. And I mm-hmm. believe I made one mistake in that book, and that was that it was Richards, another department store. Okay that became Macy's rather than Davidson. But um, that was a real treat for me because it allowed me to get clothes cheap, mm-hmm. you know, every uh, now and then they would have they would have marked down clothes in the basement for the people who worked there that they could buy these clothes. And uh, I was able to do that. And um, my job mostly was delivering packages downtown within walking distance. And usually it was at these offices of doctors and lawyers, and they would always tip me when I would bring the package over. So I really enjoyed that job uh, that summer. And when I went to Spelman, I you know, still wanted to wear pretty clothes. Mm-hmm. So I was, it was easy for me to get a, an account at Davidson, paying fifteen dollars a month okay. for for you know these unheard of <laughs> calls, and uh, that was that was about it with that uh, experience in that uh, store. Was it then that you developed your fetish for hats? Well, tell you the truth, I'm a Baptist, okay, <laughs> and um, you know every now and then, you know, I read the Bible, and when I was going to church in those days all the women wore hats because (laughs) even the catholics would have a little uh something on the top of their head you know to cover it and the bible said that uh, women should wear their hair covered at Mm -hmm. all times you know coming to church and i i've been following that all these years (laughs) i love hats If you're just joining us i'm johnny o'hanson jr and you're listening to in black america from kut radio and we're speaking with the Honorable Harriet M. Murphy, the first permanent appointed African-American female judge in Texas, civil rights activist, college professor, and author of They're All the Honor Lies. Dr. Murphy, I keep calling you Dr. Murphy, but, but Judge Murphy, when you were at Spelman, you were kind of pretty fly back then. 
Yes, but I want to <laughs> add something to what okay. you were saying about first, uh, because I am the only black woman in Texas who has served as a presidential sure. elector for the Democratic Party. Yes, I And uh, that was when Jimmy Carter uh, became president. And I don't know why. It was, I, I do know the woman who served as a presidential elector for the uh, Republican Party, but that has not been done. Since then. And, yeah. I, and then when, I, when I read that in the book, I said, well, we had, you know, Barack Obama, and they didn't have a African-American female as a elector no, uh, I don't for, think his, so. for his election. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I think it was because I was a government teacher, mm-hmm. and I knew what the importance of a presidential elector right. is or has. So when I went to the state convention, I think in Austin they had, I'm not sure whether that was some kind of districts or what, but when I got to the state convention, I knew what I wanted to tell them that I wanted, you know, because mm-hmm. I'd worked very hard in the campaign, and I thought maybe I could get, you know, something that I asked for. And I said that uh, I would like to consider running for a presidential elector for the Democratic Party. And I felt that those other people didn't know at that time how important <laughs> it was, it was right. and I did as a teacher. And sure enough, they roll out the red carpet. You get invited to the inauguration. They roll out the red carpet. They have a big reception for all the uh, electors. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to have this seat I've mentioned in the book, sitting behind Senator uh, Warner of uh, Virginia, Virginia and his wife, right. Elizabeth Taylor, you know, mm-hmm. and she was just so gorgeous in her dress and everything. And I remember, I believe it was at the same time, I saw John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy walk behind there going, like they were going somewhere. And I thought I was able to get a picture of them, but I know. I must not, I couldn't find it. I got so much junk, you know, I couldn't (laughs) find it, you know. When I was reading the book, I found it interesting that, I said, this is not the Judge Murphy that I know. When you wanted to become a lawyer, but you put it on the back burner uh, because your husband wanted, uh, you know, a housewife, but eventually you did pursue becoming a lawyer. Why did you select the University of Texas to uh, studies in law? You know, that's a very interesting story to me because there I was in Longview, Texas, Mm -hmm. trying to get blacks registered to vote and everything, and especially getting close to when my husband died. I... um, there was just so many things to be done, like in 1964 when you had the Accommodation Act, Mm -hmm. and I had to test it in Longview, couldn't get anybody to go with me to any restaurant to test it. It just so happened that there was a fellow from Longview who came, he had been, a, he's, he was a principal somewhere, and he and his wife would come visit his mother. So uh, she didn't she didn't mind going with me, mm-hmm. you know, because she felt the same way I did yeah. about things. So anyway, I worked real hard with those Democratic fellows, white fellows, you know, trying to raise the percentage of blacks and and all of that. And when it came time where I could possibly think about, really think about law school, I um, was discussing it, you know, with these fellows. And 
I didn't really know where I wanted to go, but it wasn't to the University of Texas because I had heard how discriminatory mm-hmm. you know, the school was. But I, I even wrote to Texas Southern, and they never even they wrote, responded. They wanted you back, right. <laughs> and um, so finally, they were talking, we were talking one day, and I said, I think I want to go to law school. And they said, well, the only law school you should go to is the University of Texas. They said that is the school to go to, and especially if you want to come back up here in Longview to do anything, Mm -hmm. (laughs) achieve anything, you need a degree from the University of Texas. So that's the way I applied, and um, I don't even know what my test score was. I just know I was accepted. (laughs) And um, I I came down here to talk to the dean, uh, academic dean to tell him that I couldn't come that uh, spring semester. Could I come that summer? And he said, yes, you know, you could do that. And sometimes when I'm talking to Bill, I just don't know why I was accepted at the <laughs> University of mm-hmm. Texas. Uh, since I don't remember what my score was, I do know that I made all A's at uh, Atlanta University uh, in political science, but I messed up as a college student. But then I thought about the fact that I took two correspondent courses in education from the University of Texas that was under Kilgo College uh, uh, in that area. And uh, I made A's in both of those courses. So I said, well, maybe they just think that if I could make A's (laughs) in those courses, that that I'll do all right in, in law school. But to my surprise, when I got there that summer, there were none of us, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, Bert uh, a Christian was, was there, yeah, right. but that was the only one of us who was there, and that just really shocked me. Yeah. And then, you know, getting going on to that car, I was a nervous wreck even while I was going. I, I had a heavy load teaching, which I should I was going to ask you, but I said, how are you going? You're going to law school, and you're teaching us at Houston Tillerson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I was I was doing just that, and um, I know they stress the fact that you should not work over twenty hours outside mm-hmm. of law school because law is a very jealous mistress. They said, right, right. but I needed the money, right. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to pay for my apartment rent, and I enjoyed teaching. And in fact, I enjoyed that more. All I wanted to do was just pass the courses. I don't think I flunked in any, mm-hmm. but it was just passing the courses uh, at UT uh, in law school. So, yes, that was about it there, you know. Fast forward to being appointed a judge here in Texas, first female judge in Texas. What was that day like? Well... I don't know. I thought it was just kind of an ordinary day, you know. I didn't know that I stood out like that, but I got some calls from Dallas. It had mm-hmm. come out on uh, on the radio, you know, and these people were calling me, congratulating <laughs> me, and then I realized, uh, you know, the importance uh, of it because I had no idea, you know, about who was judged and who was not judged. But um, like I said in that book, I was I was kind of a nervous wreck going to UT because blacks here in Austin kept telling me I was not going to graduate. And then when I graduated, I was not going to pass, pass the, the bar, bar you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> so 
I made it through. <laughs> Going back to Houston Tillerson, you founded a program that exposed some of my classmates and then others down the down the road of what the law profession was really all about. Tell us about that program. Well, I really enjoyed the pre-law society. Mm -hmm. And I guess the main focus was to get these students who said that they were interested in law to do as much as I could to head them toward law school. And uh, I can't think, it's a pretty well-known program that pre-law students can go to. And also, I'm not sure whether they had to take a test to go there to be accepted uh, because I remember telling them that, that so many of the Jews were able to go because they would go to the library and they would read all those books about, uh, you know, about law school <laughs> and what to expect and that they had to do the same thing, you know, if that's what they wanted. So anyway, one of the events, and I don't think I even mentioned it in the book, the dean of the law school at Baylor invited us up one Saturday to spend the day there on their campus uh, with some of the, their law students present. And um, they um, provided a boat ride for us uh, in Waco. Mm -hmm. And also we had, because it was only about eight or nine of us uh, students, and we had dinner at the dean's house, and I was surprised that they were trying to have what they thought we would like. They had a grit casserole. <laughs> because they, a I know, grits because casserole? They, yeah, they had heard that, that blacks like grits, you know. So I said, uh, I really said to myself, thank you for for being aware, you know, or trying to please us with what they thought we would enjoy. And it was, it was grits and cheese, some kind of uh, grit casserole. But I was not ever, we were not ever invited to UT to anything, you know, like that. So it was just a matter of trying to get students to register for UT and to try to get them into UT if it was any way possible, and to register for some other schools. Right. I think with those Fleming boys, uh, I think one went to Texas Southern and right. one went to Emory, I'm not sure. Yeah, you're correct. But they were very smart young men. Yes. And uh, then there was Stan Kerr. Now, the professor at UT Law School who was supposed to be trying to encourage uh, minority students but he really didn't think any of us were good, you know, <laughs> had the ability Realty. to come mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from Houston Tillerson, from right. that college, you know. But here comes Stan Kerr, and he seemed to have topped the score when they looked at his record and he registered. The man called me, the professor, I should never forget the day he called me. He said, is this Stan Kerr who applied to UT Law School from Houston Tillerson? Is he black or is he white? Uh, what, what color is he? The Honorable Dr. Harriet M. Murphy, retired municipal court judge, civil rights activist, former college dean, and author of There All the Honor Lines, a memoir. We will conclude our conversation on next week's program. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook 
and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.